Thank you, and, um, and good morning. It's great to, great to be able to look. I'm really excited about this, this book, uh, not my book, this book, the Bible book. Um, and so if you have a Bible and can turn to Exodus chapter 1, that would be great if you've got one. If you don't, we'll have the, the words up here as, as we go through. Um, and I'm going to be calling this, this first message introducing this series, going to be calling it Patterns of Redemption. And what, what that means is like redemption is a Bible word for rescue out of slavery, and that's really what this book's about. And we're going to be talking about rescue out of slavery a lot in the course of this series, and we're going to be opening by looking at the first couple of chapters. And if you are new to Christianity or new to the Bible, you may not know this story well. I mean, this is one of the two or three huge stories in the Bible, really. And other than the, the, the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, this is probably the second most important story in the Bible. Um, in terms of just giving you a sense of how God works and who he is and what he's done for his people. And you may know the story, you may know half the story from the movie The Prince of Egypt. Or the, but the Disney version only has the first half of this story. The second half of the story didn't make the cut. And so we're going to look at that more in the second half of the series. Um, but this is the story about how God led his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt into first the wilderness through the Red Sea and then into the Promised Land. But it is also a book with huge relevance for the modern world um, and huge relevance for the, the, the world we're in now. And we, we kind of need to put our finger on some of those things. And probably on this opening message, I want to do that and talk about how this story actually shapes and should shape our perspective on modern, I mean, slavery in the modern world in the last 200 years and so on, last 400 years. And it's in some ways important we do that so that we don't only see it as a beautiful message of liberation in Jesus, but also see it as a very real message of liberation for people from physical, literal slavery as well. And I'm so in doing that, I just, just think it's important for me to say, like, th- this is not my, I'm not aware of a lot of the issues that some of us live with on this. this I don't, I'm not an expert here. And I hope I know the story. I want to let the light of the Word of God expose the darkness of what many people have done. And I think we all need to do that, whether or not this is something that's personal to us. But I know that there'll be people here for whom this is very much your family story or your life's work. And some of us, in terms of modern slavery or what's happened in the last few centuries. So I just want to say this, this is important that you hear. Like, we all need to do this together, but I'm not claiming that I know what it's like to have been in that sort of position myself. I simply don't. But I'm trusting that as we read it anyway, that the power of the Word of God will break through some of the things that people have done and and show us the kind of God He is. And one way I want to lead into that is by showing you something that will probably make you angry if you haven't seen it before. It certainly made me angry when I first saw it. It is the frontispiece of a Bible that was printed in Clerkenwell, which is just eight miles away, in 1808. And on the left-hand side, you can see the frontispiece, which, which says, if you can't read it from there, parts of the Holy Bible selected for the use of the Negro slaves in the British West India Islands. And that should be a worrying start, right? And what they did was they printed a Bible that they thought would, be, would have all of the bits that might make slaves think that God was on the side of liberation and from injustice, and they took them out. Now, I, when I saw that frontispiece I, a few months ago, I thought, wow, I wonder what they did with the Exodus story. Because how, how do you have a Bible without the Exodus story? And yet the Exodus story is all about liberation from slavery. So what on earth did they do there? And that's when I looked at the right-hand side. And this is where I really had steam coming out of my ears. You look on the right-hand side of the page. 
If you know the Bible well, you know that the, the verses at the top, if you can see them at all, about Joseph and Jacob, their father, and the father of the 12 tribes, is at the end of the book of Genesis. So you are in Gen- the end of Genesis on the top half of the page. Then there's a line, and then underneath it, it says Exodus chapter 19. So the people who made this Bible had literally removed Exodus 1 to 18 from the Bible altogether and then said, oh, that's a Bible we can send to the West Indies for people to read. Now, obviously that, is, that should make you angry, right? That anybody does that. That anybody does that with the Word of God. That anybody has read the Bible in such a way that they are forced to remove chunks of it to substantiate their evil ideology. That on its own should make you angry. But what it also, in a weird way, does, I think, is provide some hope. Because the God of the Bible is so committed to liberating the slaves that you have to literally remove the story from the book in order to be able to make it look like he agrees with you. Like you can't spin it, you can't preach it a different way, you actually have to cut it out. And that's what they did. And I'm guessing the parallels would have made slave owners very uncomfortable. Right? The story that we're going to read now is set in Africa, and it's a story about slavery that's been going on for 400 years, which is roughly, pretty much exactly how long Africans were trafficked across the Atlantic Ocean between the 15th and the 19th century. So it's a painful parallel. If you're a slave owner, you're reading the Exodus story going, hmm, this sounds eerily familiar. It's a story about oppression and murder on the basis of ethnicity, or what we might now call race. It's a story of one ethnic group oppressing another ethnic group simply for being different from them. And it's motivated by a combination of fear and greed which is still what powers modern slavery, in which the powerful force the powerless to work for no wages and beat them if they don't. That's what this is a story about. And it tells of how God sides with the powerless against the powerful and then sends plagues of judgment upon their oppressors and redeems his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and then drowns their enemies in the Red Sea. That's the story. So if you're a slave owner reading this story, you can see why people want to take it out. This does not defend your position. This actually talks about you being either drowned in the sea or covered with boils or both. So we're going to read it. And we can see this is a dangerous story. right? For many people in power, this has been a dangerous story. And to this day, it speaks and should continue to speak of freedom from injustice and the faithfulness of the God who liberates slaves and redeems people. So let's read it. And we're going to see some patterns of redemption right from the start. Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens." They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
We're going to pause there for a moment and return to see a more hopeful section in a moment, but it's worth us stopping and seeing that exactly the same forces are at work here as are at work in modern slavery of all kinds, right? Notice some of the things that happen here, right? You have amnesia or forgetfulness, right? Just historical loss of memory of what's happened. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph, right? We have chosen because it suits our national narrative to forget this guy and all the good things he did for us and what we owe him and instead we're just going to act like that never happened and act with what we're facing now. Sometimes it serves the interests of people in power to just forget the story of what my people did to your people or of what you did for my people or whatever it may be. You have amnesia. You also have fear, right? The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. You think, This is topsy-turvy thinking, right? You are in power, they are not, and yet you have somehow turned yourselves into the victim and turned them into the oppressor. There's so many of them, they're going to drown us. That kind of rhetoric is still at work in our culture, right? Now, I've got to be careful with this because I'm not making a point about readers of this particular newspaper, but I just, it's a helpful way of making the point I'm making. Please don't think I therefore mean everybody who picks up a copy of the Daily Express is agreeing with all I'm saying, but if you look at this sample of front page snapshots about, and you see the way in which this rhetoric works today, you'll see the same thing still at work now. Migrants, they're, they're, they're too many and too mighty. Migrants, migrants, they're all coming to get us. And that kind of language is at risk of leading, in the end, can lead to oppression. It doesn't always, but it often can, because what happens is people are saying, they're going to take over, they're going to get us. And that's still the way that a lot of rationalization of oppression in the world today can even happen. Again, please don't mishear me, but you can see that the rhetoric is still at work in the in same way that they did in the story of Exodus. So there's fear. There's also greed, right? They built store cities for them, Python and Ramses. So there's greed at work. We know that that's a major motivator because they're building these cities to store grain, to hoard wealth. That's what they're there for. And again, slavery is primarily something that's been driven by greed in most societies. It's been something that if I can get you to work for nothing, then I can get myself wealthy while you get nowhere. And so I will use my power to extort money and wealth from you, from your labor. That's what powers virtually all forms of slavery. In the ancient world, that's what happened. Widespread in the ancient world, widespread in much of the medieval world, 12 million people from the Atlantic, across the Atlantic Ocean traffic from West Africa to North America and the Caribbean. 17 million people from East Africa across into Asia. 45 million people, by some estimates, are slaves today. Now, in the world we're in today. Just eat, they got up this morning and they're going to bed later. And they're living in slavery even now. And almost all of those are because of greed somewhere, because somebody stands to make money out of it. And, of course, you have ruthlessness, which is, if you like, what happens when you dehumanize a person. So notice just that, that in verse 14, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The writer's wanting us to see, when you treat somebody as a thing rather than as a person, you very quickly uses, leads to abuse of power and obviously violence as well, because you don't think of them as a person who bears God's image, you think of them as a piece of property. And again, the ruthlessness is a common trait in modern slavery. So there's a dark backdrop here. We just need to see it for what it is and see this is not the only time this has happened, right? At the same time, there is hope because of what God will do. And this is, the story begins to turn, as it often does in the Bible, with the story of these women we're going to read about in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. 
So notice, sex-selective abortion is not new. This has been around a long time. But the midwives feared God and didn't do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women, they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. It's absolute nonsense. Right? There's no truth in that at all. And, and, but they are, they are using their wit to get out of something to avoid say, killing the lives of children. Right? So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that's born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi, which is one of the tribes of Israel, went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So she's being funded to raise her own child by Pharaoh's. That's quite cool, I think, as a nice outcome. Now, this story is where we start to see some of the patterns of redemption, the patterns of God redeeming from slavery. Not all of them, but they begin here. One of them is that if you notice this in Scripture, redemption often begins with women. The stories of redemption, even when the person who is going to lead the people might be a man, as it is in this story and in a number of others, the story begins with women. And you'll find that often happens in Scripture, actually. If you remember, in our, if you were here last year, our Genesis series, we saw it a number of times. So Eve is where the, actually the hope begins. She's, she's the one who's going to bring the snake crusher, who's going to come from her. You find Tamar is the one where the story of Judah and the whole line of Judah comes from, the Jewish people. You have Rahab at the start of the story of Joshua and the conquest of the land. You have Ruth, who becomes an ancestor of David. You have the story of Hannah, front and center, long before you find out who Samuel is. You have Esther, rescuing the people of Israel. You have Elizabeth, who's given the promise about John the Baptist. You have Mary, the young Virgin Mary, given the promise about Jesus. And even on Easter Sunday, it's a woman and women who are there to see the empty tomb. So you often find, as soon as you see God suddenly speaking about hope to women, you think, God's at work here, because that's often what happens in the scriptural story. And in this story, it's midwives and the mum and Miriam, along with, of course, Pharaoh's daughter. In fact, in the until verse, and so far we have not actually read of any named men in the story. The only man we know about is Pharaoh, who's the villain, and all the goodies, if you like, are women. And there's something repetitive about that in scripture as you read through the whole story you think ah this this is a common theme in the narrative and interestingly it's not just women it's actually women bringing redemption and salvation through their ingenuity and their wit their brains if you like which again as we saw if you've been around you may have heard other stories we preached through with exactly that theme in the church where you often find that men have the power socially but women use their wits to get the better of the men and that's what happens in this and 
again, it never happens now. I'm just saying it used to happen then. Um, and uh, and you can, it's very obvious, isn't it? When you read through some of these stories, you've got these women going, oh, we can't help it. I mean, the women are not the same. And you have the, oh, could I go and get the mother to look after the child, maybe? You know, there's a number of women here who are outmaneuvering the male and the men in order to rescue a child. And the same's often been true with modern slavery as well. Actually, it's often women who are on the front line of seeing oppressed and marginalized people, because in many societies, women have had less social power, and as a result, are more attuned to see what's going on with those who don't have power. And often, it's through their ingenuity that they have managed to outmaneuver men in order to bring freedom for people. Um, one of my, I, this is my favorite example, although there are many of them, and many of you know she got a whoop in the first meeting and may get one again, but Harriet Tubman, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I got a multiple whoops. Okay. Harriet Tubman... What a fantastic! Now, some of us know the story, which is why you're clapping. Some of us go, I, I, I may not know that story, or it may be a bit hazy. Harriet Tubman was a slave in 19th century America, and she escaped and then was one of the key figures on the Underground Railroad, which is a way of bringing people from the slave states to freedom and safety in the northern states. Um, and she's a pretty remarkable woman. This will give you a flavor of the lady. She was, I think it would be fair to say, a, a fiery person. This is the prayer that she prayed for her slave master, which changes halfway through. And some of you are laughing preemptively because you know the story, right? This is what she said. I prayed all night long for my master till the 1st of March, and all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me. I changed my prayer. 1st of March, I began to pray, Oh, Lord, if you ain't never going to change that man's heart, kill him, Lord, and take him out of the way. So this is a dangerous person to have against you, I suspect, right? So, now, that's not, by the, but that just gives you a flavor of the lady. But some of the things she did, some of the, she used ingenuity, actually not social power as a female slave. You don't have much of that. But what she did was to use ingenuity in order to be able to bring freedom, not just to herself, but to many others. The night she left, the night she ran away and escaped, she was singing the song, I'll meet you in the morning, I'm bound for the promised land, to her fellow slaves, out of her room, so that people could hear, this is when Harriet goes, she's safe, this is how she's escaping, because they know the biblical story, they know, I'll meet you in the morning, I'm bound for the promised land, is freedom from slavery time. When she got out, she then comes back and is working on the Underground Railroad to help people escape, and she uses the song, Go Down Moses, as a code. Again, some of you know the story. She would use the song, Go Down Moses, Way Down in, e- in Egypt's Land, Tell Old Pharaoh, Let My People Go. But she would sing it at a different volume according to whether it was safe or unsafe for them to leave. So she'd use it as a code in the slave community to say, I'm communicating not just the words here about freedom from this story, but also I want to make sure you know whether it's safe or not to come now. At the end of her life, and this is another thing that you'll often find with people who are working to liberate people, um, and particularly for much of history, women in this particular context. This, this is something that Frederick Douglass, another famous abolitionist, said of her at the end of her life. And this, is, this may encourage you if you are working in some context you think no one sees this. This is what Frederick, Frederick Douglass said of her. Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in public, and I've received much encouragement at every step of the way. You, on the other hand, have labored in a private way, I have wrought in the day, you in the night. Excepting John Brown of sacred memory, I know of no one who has willingly encountered more perils and hardships to serve our enslaved people than you have. And that's actually a lovely comment, I think, whether or not for you the issue is 
slavery, redemption from redeeming others from slavery, which for most of us it isn't. But actually, there may be all kinds of areas where you say, yeah, I am doing something which I know is the work of God, and I know it's what God wants me to do, and no one can see it. And, there are some, and actually, somebody else is doing a similar kind of work, and they're very visible. And what you find is with these women in the Exodus story, like Harriet Tubman here, they've got this, I'm, I'm doing something at great peril, and in fact, probably, were it not for the fact it's been written in the Bible, completely unseen. Right? You and I know the end of the story, so we know, yeah, Miriam, great, she gets to play the tambourine when they get out the Red Sea. You think, yes, she does, but she doesn't know that. Right? She's going, I am risking my... What if they find out what I've done? Moses' mother is saying, any day I could be breastfeeding my son, and someone could come in and take him away and kill me for trying to rescue him, and then kill the baby. So they don't know how the story ends, but they are facing peril daily, risking their lives to see God's redemption purposes come about. And they don't know how it, went, how it ends. It's largely invisible work that's very dangerous, and often it is. So we, what we're beginning to see is a number of ways in which the stories told are setting us up for themes or patterns of rescue that God will use again and again in the Bible and in the modern world. You see the same kind of thing happening in the modern fight against slavery and in many other ways as well. Verse 10. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's, grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, Moshe, which means he draws out, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So this child's name means draws out. So anytime he meets someone as an adult and they say, what's your name? He says, draws out. You see, to us, Moses is a name, isn't it? It sounds less like a, you know, Moses, Andrew, Hillary, Steve. It just sounds like a name. Whereas, of course, for them, this is like, no, I, every time I meet someone, I say, what's your name? Draws out. And it's embedded into his name that he is the kind of person that God has rescued up out of danger. In fact, the kind of person whom God has rescued out of the waters into safety when Pharaoh was trying to kill him. And isn't that amazing that Moses has had an exodus journey all of his own as a baby, Right? He's threatened by Pharaoh. Pharaoh's trying to kill him. He goes down into the water and then comes through to safety and is drawn out of the water and kept safe and goes on, if you like, to freedom. And that's exactly what Moses, as an 80-year-old man, is going to lead his people to. God has put into Moses' personal story as a baby. He's too young to do anything about it. And yet in his story is already evidence of the fact that the God he serves is the kind of God who draws out and brings people to freedom through the waters of danger and rescues them from Pharaoh who's trying to kill him. That's why we've used this strapline for the series. He draws us out to draw us in. He's the kind of God who always brings people out of captivity and into his freedom and presence and joy. And that's written into Moses' name. So he's always going to be the kind of guy who leads his people out of the waters through the Red Sea, if you like, and into freedom. Verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, so okay, Moses is, spoiler uh, spoiler alert, in the end, the people of Israel get out, right? And Moses leads them, aged 80. We've now had him age naught, but now we're going to see halfway between, about age 40. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. 
Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses has had an exodus as a baby, right? Pharaoh's trying to kill him, goes down into the water, comes out to safety. Now he has another exodus as a 40-year-old man, 40 years before he ends up with his third exodus in which he leads the people out. Right? That's the story we've just read. There is an Egyptian oppressing a Hebrew, and Moses strikes him down. Pharaoh tries to kill him. Moses flees to the east, to the land of Midian, settles in a new land, rescues people from attackers in the wilderness, and provides them with water. And then 40 years later, that's exactly what will happen. Egypt will be oppressing the Hebrews. Moses will bring, strike people down, literally with plagues. He will then flee east to a different land, and in the wilderness, he will rescue Israel from attackers and provide them with water in the desert. I mean, this is... By the time he gets to the third one, you're thinking, oh no, not again. I've been here twice already. What am I, what's with the, I keep getting exoduses, God. What's going on? And of course, the point is that God often does that. God puts things early in your life to prepare you for things that you will later need to do. And sometimes those things will be really hard, right? It is no picnic to run for your life and spend 40 years in another land. I'm not saying you should kill people whenever you... I mean, I'm, that's not the point I'm making. But you see, it, it, it's not, that's a hardship. It's a hardship to... to under, that's an understatement. It is a hardship to find that all the boys of your generation are being killed by the government to stop you surviving. And you have to float away down a river in a basket. But those hardships, both of them exodus shapes, have prepared Moses for when the moment comes, he's now going to lead his people, and he's already done it twice. And you may find... I imagine for you, as for me, it's not, I'm going to lead people. I've never done that. I've never led a whole nation out of slavery. So if you have, great, and you and Moses together. But most of us, that's not where we're serving. But what does happen is that God uses our circumstances through providence to prepare us for the later things that he will do with us in family life, in work life, in ministry life, perhaps. And you will find that the things that have happened to you in your early years prepare you. That's very encouraging, particularly if you're young. You see, a lot of the older people in here are the ones who are nodding sagely, going, yeah, that's exactly what happens. But a lot of younger people, you think the whole thing is all about the thing you're doing now, and sometimes it can help to go, do you know what? This may not even be the, second, the first or the second. This may just be preparation for something that God's later going to do through me in order to bring rescue to other people. And that's kind of encouraging, I think, for us, and that's what happened in my life, I think. I, I just realize now that what I'm doing is very closely connected to the fact that age 17, I was really scared to preach in my college chapel to my friends, but I did, and kind of went, I really went for it, like preached the gospel, like Jesus died on the cross, and this is what happened, you know, kind of big gospel thing. And I know that that's connected in some way. This is very mundane compared to leaving a, leading a people out of slavery. It's small. But actually, I know that in my world, that was very important. And some of you will go, yeah, that experience and that one were ways in which God brought me to the point where I'm now able to do that. And that's what happened to Harriet Tubman, actually. I, I had an exodus, and that enabled me to go back and lead other people into slavery. That's what happened to Frederick Douglass. I had an exodus, I got out of slavery, and now I then was able to go back and lead others out. That's what happened to Moses. It may be what has happened or is happening to you. 
So we're beginning to see some of the, see what I mean by patterns of redemption? That the way that God saves people here is like the way that God rescues people from slavery elsewhere, both in scripture and in history and in our lives. We have a number of themes. We have power being abused out of greed, fear, ignorance, or all three. We have women using their wits to outmaneuver men and save lives. We have a baby boy whose name means draws out, who grows up to strike down the Egyptians and deliver the Hebrews and provide water in the desert. So we have patterns. But that's not where the hope comes from. The hope in this story doesn't come from how well Moses has been prepared for this journey. Ultimately, it comes from verses 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. You notice God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. That's where the hope comes from in this story. It's the fact that God is the one who hears the cry going up and people saying, I am under the cosh, I can't take this, and God can hear. And then God remembers, I made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I promised I was going to bless these people come what may. And he then saw the injustice that was taking place, and he knew. And if you know the character of God by this point in the story, you don't even need to read the rest of Exodus. You know what's going to happen now, don't you? Because you know that if the living God of the burning bush and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has seen this injustice and remembered his covenant, then it's game over. You know they are going to be led out to freedom, as in fact they are. And when you and I are suffering, that's where the hope comes from too it's that God hears it's that God sees it's that God remembers his covenant and he knows and if you're wondering how do I know that's true as in well that was a long time ago how do I know that's still true for me the way you know it's true is because God doesn't just say this stuff he actually does it and becomes the kind of person who experiences the exact same oppression that Israel did He becomes a child who himself, like Moses, is born into oppression and captivity. And as he's born, has to be rescued from a genocidal king who's trying to kill him. So when Jesus is, Herod is trying to kill all the kids in Bethlehem, that's exactly because that's what happened here. And that there is a king trying to kill him and he has to be rescued through the ingenuity and faithfulness of a young Israelite woman whose name, as it happens, is Mariam in Hebrew, which is Mary. We know her as Mary, but it's the same name, Miriam, that his sister has here. And he's, through that, is then able to flee across to safety. And like, he then grows up, like Moses, surrounded by the oppression of his people. Moses is surrounded by Egyptians. Jesus is surrounded by Romans. But every day they would have lived, maybe on the way to the carpentry shop, surrounded by the reality that other soldiers are trying to oppress my people. And I feel connected with them. And therefore, early on in life, he strikes an early blow against his enemy. And he then goes out into the wilderness, just like Moses. And he fights for his people, like Moses. And he gives living water to all who are thirsty in the desert, just like Moses. And as you read on, you'll realize it's not just that Jesus is the Moses we need, although he is beautifully. But as we go on, we'll see he's also the God of the burning bush that we need. He's also the Passover lamb slain for the sins of the world. He's also the manna that comes down from heaven to feed us. He's the water that comes out of the rock. He's the glory that fills the temple. And as you see Jesus from beginning to end, you can say, I don't know why this situation is happening. I don't understand the grief or the sadness of my oppression or suffering. But what I do know is that God hears and God sees and he remembers and he knows. And on that basis, I can trust him to be faithful. 
because of Jesus, I can say, and so can you, and so could Moses, and so could Harriet Tubman, I will see you in the morning. I am bound for the promised land. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this marvelous story and how it explodes so many of the things that have held people captive. Lord, I, I pray that as we go through this series, you would show us things and help us experience things that not only lead us to work for redemption from literal physical oppression, although definitely that in this city and beyond, but also that you would liberate us from anything else, that is, all the spiritual things that can hold people captive too. We pray for redemption in all its fullness. We pray for freedom to come to the men and women of this church and the children of this church, the community we're in. We pray for freedom to be experienced on the grounds of the God who remembers his covenant and knows us so well. Lord, we thank you for this story. We pray it would have its powerful work in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.